This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, hopes to get some benefit from US economic growth or lack thereof. I'm Scott Phillips, and as always, I'm joined by Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? G'day, Captain. Uh, I am all right. I, you know, I could be better, but I'm all right. <laughs> you always say that. You're, I, the day you say you're fantastic, I'm going to start worrying, is all I'm saying. Well, you know, it's, it's, I always like to have grass half green, sort of, you know, it's grass is green, always on the other side. You know, it's half cloudy, half sunny. Too much optimism, optimism I think, makes me complacent. So I like to be okay. Okay. a little, little optimist and a little like pessimist it. at the same time. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get straight into the podcast. We've got a heap to cover this week. We have got U.S. economic growth. We have got U.S. interest rates. We have got banks by the dozen, or at least a couple of them. We've got a potential private equity takeover, maybe possibly, let's talk about that, and Dilution Central. We've talked about that a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, mate, and we can't not do it again. We'll get talking to that. Also, some spectacular sales growth that brings with it a lower share price. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, mate, let's get started at the very top, the big macro, as we do most weeks. This was a, a fantastic number, not in terms of great result, but the sheer size of it. U.S. economic growth for the first quarter of this calendar year was released overnight our time. We're recording this on Thursday, as we are wont to do these days. And Wednesday night, about 11.30 or so, I was still up doing some work with Channel 9 and the little Wall Street Journal alert came up on my phone. Economic growth in the US was minus 4.8% for the first quarter. Now, if you think about the fact that coronavirus really didn't impact us till the second half of that first quarter, 4.8% is a massive fall. And so, of course, shares, well, they rose. Shares on the S&P 500 overnight, uh, again, Wednesday night, were up by 2.7%. Now, I gotta ask you, mate, I, 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 have a, I have a view on this as you know, we, our listeners might be surprised, but I'm gonna ask you, is the market mad? How, how is it possible that a 4.8% contraction in the economy leads to a 2.7% rise in share prices? So, I, you know, um, um, as we do, <laughs> I'll make up some theory <laughs> of, what, <laughs> of what might be happening. But, but I think, you know, here's the thing, right? The result, okay, so 4.8% is hardly telling the real story because, as you just said, it's really the second half, right? And the, the results are going to be actually worse when you look at the second quarter because they're going to show the full impact, right? U.S. unemployment numbers are something like 26 million, which is out of 160-odd million people um, in the workforce or something like that, Some, in, in that ballpark. <laughs> it is just a huge amount of um, unemployment. Putting that into the context, if you put that unemployment number in the context of the extreme low unemployment numbers that they've had just before that, uh, it is a significant, significant um, change, right? It's a huge disruption. Now, so I, th I think a couple of things to keep in mind. So the markets did react savagely to the bad news and the closing of economies and everything, right? So the market really pulled back hard and fast. And then sort of since then, you know, the market has slowly, slowly readjusted, recalibrated itself. Now, 
the market is a forward-thinking machine. Um, a couple of things have happened, I think, overnight uh, that I think are important. So this big trial that this company called Gilead has been doing, this is a large trial um, that Gilead has been doing, which is across multi-country, and it is showing some promise in treating patients of COVID-19 who are in the hospital. And that's, that's important, and it's showing, showing promise. And it's the first statistically valid trial. That's number one. Number two is um, there's a sense that you know, definitely. So, for example, Australia is potentially past the peak. You know, some. You know, most of Europe probably is potentially past the peak at least this time round, and maybe the U.S. is also getting close to the peak or you know past the peak. So, people are now looking past next step. How do we open? How do we you know restart? So that's good news, right? So it's, it could be that Q2 is peak, and then we sort of start improving. So the market should improve with that. So that's number two. Number three would be that. Uh, some of the results are interesting that are coming from, you know, especially from the tech side is tech companies have not been impacted that much as one would think. Um, you know, a lot of companies have adopted uh, work from homes and things like that. So th- there are winners, there are losers uh, in, in sort of this, uh, this situation, but it seems like a lot of the larger companies, especially tech-based companies have not been disrupted that much. Of course, now if this continues for that for a very long time, because the economy is so interconnected, everybody hurts, right? But we also have to keep in mind something else. As my last point is, um, the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, RBA, you know, you name it, the European Central Bank. Everybody's basically said we will do everything we need to do to basically <laughs> yeah. solve the problem. So when when you have this sort of you know kitchen sink type of solution being, uh, you know, kitchen sink approach, you know, we're going to throw whatever needs to be thrown at it. Um, it seems like the world in Overall, not just the not the companies, but people. So people have been proactive. They're doing social distancing. They're following the rules. The the central the the governments have been giving financial stimulus, trying to help small businesses, trying to help you know small, big, medium businesses. And then you have companies adapting to the situation and making the best out of it. Try to help each other. Then you have you know all these efforts in vaccine and treatment and you know Google and Al- uh, Alphabet together working for example to develop uh, a contact tracing framework uh, that that can be deployed globally um, you know and that's just been released overnight so I think there's a lot of impetus to get back to normal because everybody wants to get back to normal so I think that is being reflected is it too much optimism that's going to be hard to tell um, maybe there is a little bit of too much optimism and maybe we are going to see um, you know if there's an optimism baked into it. And then if, you know, Q2, everybody knows it's going to be bad. But then if people don't start seeing improvements as pe- maybe the market overall is expecting, and I don't know, I'm just speculating, maybe in Q3, Q4, maybe there's, you know, pullback at that time. Um, so it's a whole combination of things. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of my ballpark thinking. I'm not saying the market is right. I'm just saying that, you know, there's an explanation as to what, as, okay, I guess one more final point. Why would you park your money if you have money to park? Like if you're in, if you're in pension fund, if you're in you know SMSF or you are a superannuation fund or you just got this money to be parked and invested, you rates are zero, so you wouldn't be really putting them into bonds. You could put them in junk bonds, which are going to be extremely risky, uh, or um, you put them in equities, right? So there's that other equation is that there's a lot of money that needs to be invested, I guess, and you know where will it go? It looks like the equities are probably your best bet for return at this point. Um, so, I mean, those are sort of you know commission facts. That's my. Thing. Mark, I like it. I um, I'll talk to the the overnight move specifically here, and I think 
This is, and we, we say this to people all the time, your point, the market is, you're not saying the market is right, is a really important one because, you know, every time you see some bad news and share prices rising, the, the most logical or most often accurate explanation is the market was simply expecting worse. <laughs> so that's, and, you know, and that's, and that's always worth remembering, right? Because, um, you know, I, I spoke to some people this week and the question's come up a couple of times, you know, why is the, is the market ignoring the economy? And I keep saying people know, Remember, the, the market fell by almost 40% in the, in the first bits of news of, of where coronavirus really hit hard. And so even though the recovery has been impressive in percentage points, it's come from a really, really low base, right? So if you, let's, let's do some round numbers. If you've got 100 bucks or 100 index, index points and the market falls 40%, it goes from 100 to 60. Now, if it grows 10% from there, you're not getting 10 points back of the 40 you've lost. In other words, 40% of the fall, you're getting six points back, right? So because you're getting 10% of 60 on the way back up, you're always using the new base as the, as the base for the calculation of the percentage point gain. And so I think the market here is up like, what, 15% or so, Doc, from the, the post-corona lows. But again, that's 15% from the low, not 15% of those 40 percentage points that we lost coming back. And that's why it's really important to remember the base. So that's the first thing, even though there is some sort of air quotes recovery in share prices, Maybe the market's wrong now. Maybe the market's right now was wrong before, but it's all about that sense of, you know, the, the new view versus the old view. And I think overnight in the US, what we saw was, again, we're all speculating because there is no, there's no, there's, no official, there's no official record of why investors did what they did in any given day. The question really is, you know, did the market expect worse from the GDP numbers? I have to believe the answer is yes, because that's why you see a 5% fall in, in, in economic growth, and a 3% rise in the share market because everyone went, oh, thank God it wasn't worse. You know, those who've been holding off buying or those who've been worried about the market uh, also, also having that. Also worth saying, by the way, overnight we saw earnings from Facebook and Google in particular um, who had some, some decent results, like Microsoft, sorry, I should say, uh, had some decent results. So there is also some sense that the world's biggest companies are doing okay, as you already mentioned, in that environment. And that's, that's also kind of helping in some sense that while the GDP numbers might be down, Again, remembering that the stock market isn't the economy, as we say regularly, to some degree, those big companies doing well because they're so big, like our banks are in our market here, that has a really outsized impact on the market, both in terms of sentiment, but just simply in terms of index points, right? And when, when the world's largest companies go up meaningfully, you know, that, 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 that covers the, the, the bottom 300 or 400 companies in, in absolute terms. So, you know, when a Google or an Apple or, a, you know, someone like that has a good result, you're going to see that just simply be much more impactful than a couple hundred companies doing badly just because of the, the index weights. Agreed. All right, let's move on speaking. Well, saying the US actually, uh, Jerome Powell, the US Fed chair, you, you already mentioned this, but promises to use the full range of tools to do whatever it takes. Now, those who've been following the, the markets for the last decade or so might remember Mario Draghi, the European central banker, Super Mario, as he was nicknamed. That was, He was the famous whatever it takes. That was really what broke the back of the pessimism around the GFC and the not so much the, the cause of the GFC, which we know was um, largely subprime credit and that kind of stuff, but the kind of financial freeze that came with it, the, the freezing of international credit markets um, that really still Europe isn't out of entirely, but that whatever it takes comment from Draghi, which just basically said to investors and general economic participants, hey, it'll be okay, we'll do whatever it takes, worked. Jerome Powell taking a leaf out of his playbook. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the as, as we have said many times on this podcast, I think the fact that GFC happened is actually a blessing for this current crisis because otherwise we wouldn't have a template. This template really that yeah, I mean the, the reason we have problems is that 
you know, credit markets basically freeze. Basically, money stops stops moving. If money stops moving, then basically people can't borrow and people can't borrow to invest. You know, and when I say invest, I don't mean borrow to invest as in like into in stocks. I, I mean borrow to invest in productive, you know, building assets, do, you know, starting new businesses right, right. and things like that. What keeps the business going? So not not telling anyone that, they, you know, you should borrow to invest. But but the, 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 whole, the whole idea that money needs to flow and that it needs to flow you know, from the people who have it, the savers to the people who need it to do something with it, to build, you know, to build, build assets, build businesses, build jobs, create jobs. And so that stops. And that's really the, often the problem. And, and I, this is really like, I mean, everywhere you look at Australia too, like, I mean, everywhere, that's really been the focus, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you th- if you think about, you know, like what JobKeeper, for example, is trying to do, it's basically trying to say, you know, we understand that the, the businesses are currently in a, in a serious state of shock, right? It's like, you know, it's like the coronavirus patient in the ICU. But we're assuming that a lot of these patients are going to actually wake up and be fine. And and therefore, if we can just, you know, manage this current situation, uh, you know, it's it's going to be okay. So I think it's just, it's trying to keep the productive base of the economy going. So I I think that that is really helpful. But the one thing I worry about is uh, sometimes when, when people say that, you know, whatever it takes, it sometimes it seems you might just do a little too much <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, that might cause problems down the lane. But, you know, in my mind, that seems like maybe that's the smaller problem of the lot. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, let's get through this. And then once we get through this, um, you know, I've seen a lot of positive news overall, as I said in the, in the, in the, in the previous part over the last, say, 15, 20, you know, like, you know, let's say half a month. And, that, yeah. you know, that, that really, I think, is, is, a, is a move in the right, right direction, whether it's, you know, relaxation of social distancing norms here or, you know, other developments that are happening. So, um, yeah, so I think overall, great. May I ask you a question, actually, without notice on, on this? Um, I'm curious, so we, we obviously, well, we think we know that Australia is doing better with corona than the U.S. is in particular. Um, I saw, you know, we had something like seven cases, new cases on the same day as the UAE had 513 new cases. I mean, we're a smaller population and I'm not suggesting we should take victory laps. It's not about we're better than them or anything else. But there is, if you, if you line up the curves, we're all, we're all about curves these days. Everyone's learned about curves. If you line up the curves, it seems like as you, as you kind of inferred, we're further along the, the path of, rest, of, of lifting restrictions than perhaps most other com- countries are. Um, again, whether or not that we should do that, let's put the just the, the reality of what's probably likely to happen. That means, and we've, uh, Scott Morrison during the week talked about the fact that international travel with New Zealand may actually reopen while the rest of the international travel is closed. Now, I don't talk about travel necessarily, though you're welcome to. I'm more curious as to your thoughts on the economic impact. So in, in some, you know, Australia may well be in a better position economically, socially, health-wise than, say, Europe or the US. And... That's a- to some degree, we, we're an economy that has, you know, we're, we're a trading economy, we're an international economy. Now, you don't have to have people well to send iron ore to China or to send, uh, you know, wheat to, to, to America. But on the same, by the same token, there is some element we know that the world economy matters a lot to the Australian economy. Just your thoughts on kind of, you know, if you're an optimist, you're going to say, look, Australia gets out of this sooner rather than later. The Australian economy actually does better growth-wise as other economies simply because we get back into gear more quickly. But there's still that element of, yeah, that's all true, but we've got the international element of our economy still with a big, big question mark over it while the US and Europe sort themselves out. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've been actually thinking about this. 
um, as to what happens. So it's interesting that different countries have different uh, so, uh, pathways here, right? So Australia and New Zealand, for example, are uh, further ahead in the uh, the curve flattening um, process, right? Yeah. Now, um, however, as you directly pointed out, what you can only keep the curve flattened as long as you keep your borders closed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so. So that's the interesting paradigm, right? The interesting paradigm is that basically you will have no international tourism. And um, while that's good for domestic tourism, it's mm-hmm. not good for all the millions of people that come here every year to spend money, right? Uh, that's right. one. It would, it would also mean that, you know, there'll be no international, there's likely to be, you know, less international investments in the country. There's, you know, less international investment. So there's always the downside of that is um, you are... Uh, you have less flow of funds happening across Australia. So I think, well, the positive definitely is from a local economy starting and getting back on its feet quicker. Um, there is that risk. I think the other thing that I, I think about and I worry about, and, and I guess the solution here is really a vaccine, is there is there would be this factor. So like so, different countries have taken different uh, routes, right? So Sweden's one is very interesting. Sweden's Sweden has significantly higher debt rates than uh, if you think if you think in relative to their population, right? So Sweden's population yeah, right. is about like say ten million. They've had you know maybe fifteen, sixteen hundred debts. If you scale that, um, that's you know if you just if you scale it even in Australian proportions, right? That's like you know two and a half times. That's significantly yeah. higher, orders of magnitude higher. What now this goes back to this debate of what is right, what's wrong in terms of um, you know basically they they have pursued sort of in many ways the herd immunity model, right? But with 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 lax uh, with lower levels of social distancing. So the question really is: does does the fact that you've had more damage in the beginning? help you get back quicker or does the fact that you've had less damage in the beginning actually help you get back? I actually don't know the yeah, answer right. to that. Right. It's not clear to me what the answer is. Um, but but overall, like, I mean, I think here's the thing, right? In local, local businesses, businesses will, I think, get back. Whether or not it helps in um, getting back, I think there's, a, okay, let me, let me rephrase that. I think it's positive if if stuff opens up then it's positive for businesses that are currently struggle. They will struggle less, right? Yeah. Whether they're you know thriving or not, we don't know. But they will struggle less. That's, that's <laughs> positive, I think. That's that's, that's number one positive. Uh, local tourism will be a positive. Maybe trans Tasman uh, tourism will be a positive. Uh, lack of international tourism will be and will be a negative, net negative. Lack of international students will be a net negative. So there are a whole bunch of sectors that are going to be impacted if the borders have to remain closed because of um, our curve flattening. And our current strategy, right? So, and I'm not, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm very supportive of the current strategy. I, I actually think the current strategy, or you know, which prioritizes health over economy, I think in the long run is beneficial. I don't know whether in the short run um, is entire. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I don't really have a view mm. on. It's really hard for me to figure out um, all the puts and takes involved because there's just just so many. And ultimately, I think like in a global economy, if unless the global economy really recovers, I mean. If if the U.S. and the Chinese and the say you know the Europeans are consuming less, that has imp- that has impact on demand of our stuff. So uh, there's a whole bunch of related things that that matter. But net net, I think net net, I think I, I think we're in good position. Is and I think that mm. the good position is is always a win, whether it's in terms of less lives lost, whether it means you know businesses coming back to work 
sooner than expected. Um, I think I think that, that those are all all wins in my book, and um, that's great. That's a good summary, mate. Let's uh, let's move on. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's talk about the banks. And I know they're a favorite stock of yours. Now I'm desperately hoping that over the last few years, it's almost three years old now, I suppose. It can't be far off that. Um, we have spent lots and lots and lots of time, uh, hopefully not boring our listeners too much, but reminding them that the banks aren't the be all and end all of the investment universe. Um, I'm not saying we predicted this because we didn't. No one predicted coronavirus, let alone the, um, you know, the, the flow and impacts from it. But, you know, to some degree, the realities of the banking sector and the risks that people overlooked during the good times are coming to roost. We didn't know this was going to be the cause, but fair to say we weren't super surprised that this kind of fragility, you know, was exposed by an event of some description or other. I think you and I probably thought it might be a Chinese shock or just a straight out house price shock locally, something else. Um, or of its own volition. In this case, it wasn't. It was coronavirus. But this week alone, two of the big four banks, NAB and ANZ, have been out. We've seen NAB cut its dividend in half, I think. Uh, maybe more, two-thirds, I think, cut it by. And cash profits, 60%. Cash profits fell by half. ANZ out this morning, again, Thursday morning, we're recording this. Cash profits down by 60%. It's deferring its entire dividend, is it? Yeah, it's different deferring its entire dividend. Actually, for what it is worth, I'll give full marks to NZ for doing the, I think from a capital allocation perspective, doing the right thing. Right. And I'll give absolutely negative marks to NAB for <laughs> uh, for doing from a capital allocation, from a shareholder's point of view, doing absolutely what I would say is, um, I don't know, it's it's just bad <laughs> because yep. what the, what NAB is doing is NAB is raising $3.5 billion in equity, fresh equity. That's basically dilution, right? Uh, so it's printing extra shares, quantitative easing of its share base. Um, and then that's close to 10%, maybe a little less, actually less than 10%. NAB is about a $54 billion market cap last one I checked. So it's, it's fairly less. 67, uh, yeah. Yeah, 67%. That's dilution. And then it's using that. Uh, 900 million odd straight to pay back dividends right now. I think I, I know if, if, if I'm NAB, I'm hoping a lot of these people are going to sign up uh, for, you know, dividend reinvestment plans. And while I like dividend reinvestment plans, I absolutely detest dividend reinvestment plans that are actually quantitative easing programs. So, so I, I don't mind a dividend reinvestment plan where the broker buys <laughs> me shares in the market. I absolutely mind a dividend reinvestment plan where new shares are printed. Um, Okay. So, uh, let's, let's, wait, let's, let's, let's just unsettle you from your high horse for half a second. I want yes. to talk about some of the, how we got here and then you can, you can re-rant, which I love. You know, yes. I love a rant. Uh, so here's, here's the, there's a couple of things that, that really impacted earnings. The first was in NAB's case, and I'm pretty sure in ANZ's case, I haven't seen the detail. They're still copying some costs from the Royal Commission, believe it or not. And I've got to say, as much as you're bagging NAB about the dividend policy and you're probably right, one thing is unbelievable to me is the remediation costs still keep coming in. I think this is NAB's third bite at that particular cherry. It, 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 is, it is bizarre to me that it was 1.1 billion was the most recently announced. And that was three or four weeks ago before the results were handed down. So, oh, by the way, guys, another $1.1 billion of remediation costs for the, the, the findings of the Royal Commission. How they didn't know that six or 12 months ago is beyond me. Like, I get their skeletons in the closet. I get you got to do some more work on this stuff, but... When you're finding a $1.1 billion bill 
under a lounge cushion. Um, I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I don't know how that happened. So that mini rant aside, that was part of the impact. I'm sure ANZ is still feeling that impact as well. There is a reduction in the just business as usual business at both these banks and importantly for bank shareholders. And we'll get back to this. If you, you can feel free to pick it up or you can go back to your equity raising rant, but um, there's a massive increase at NAV and I'm sure at ANZ of accruals allowances for bad and doubtful debts. In other words, part of what's hurt their profits is actually not cash going out the door just yet. It is the reality that they're booking lower profits because their loan book they currently have. So if you, if you let's say you're NAB, you've got, let's just say, make it easy for me. You've got hundred mortgages on your book. You would have said previously, look, one of those won't pay back. So I've got a bad and doubtful debt allowance. In other words, the chance they won't pay back at 1% of my loan book. Given this, given the unemployment, given the economic shock, they've said, oh, actually that might now be 3%. And so what you've got to do is you've got to reduce the carrying value of your loans by that. And that hits the expense line on the P&L. And so that's what we've seen from NAB. You've got, and you've got to say, okay, that's, a, that's an expense. Now, at some level, that's not a real expense. There's no cash flowing out the door yet, at least for the most part, but it's a recognition and a very welcome and frankly, massively belated recognition that that is true. I've, I've ranted and I won't, I won't steal your rant, but I've ranted before that banks have been carrying bad and doubtful debt allowances, which are stupidly, stupidly low. They have massively, they're always carrying too little because there's always going to be a downturn economically at some point to assume, you know, the accountants are supposed to be conservative, right? You're supposed to take a conservative perspective, not a worst case, but a conservative perspective. Their bad debts are always way too low. And this is the banks having to pay the piper. So those are the three elements that have hurt earnings. And obviously by a lot, we you know, NAB was down 50%, ANZ down 60%. They are less strong, more fragile than many people believe. And we're seeing exactly that. If a, if, if a couple of months worth of, you know, tough economic, very tough economic conditions can hurt your profit by 50% and you're in a massively leveraged business, something like 13 or 14 to one debt compared to the assets on your book, that's a, that's a pretty scary place to be. Now, as you've then said, because of this, They've also all of a sudden gone, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't have enough money yet. <laughs> so we'll have to do something about it. And that's the basis for the capital raising, as you say. In NAB's case, they're still paying. In ANZ's case, they've deferred the dividends entirely. And as you say, there's a cash roundabout, merry-go-round, with NAB saying, hey, we'll give, you, we'll give you $800 million in one hand, and we'll take three and a half in the other. Back to you. You know, I think that's a great summary. So uh, the the fragility, actually. So here's the thing, right? I think they're now basically taking, basically they're making reserves, as you said, for what is in the pipeline. So there's maybe some good news for them in the sense that if our economy is opening quicker, then they, the sort of the losses that they're likely to experience is going to be less than, I guess, maybe what they reserve, unless, you know, they're still reserving less, <laughs> which is always the risk, right? But here's, I, I'm actually re- reading the Fin which is, or the Australian uh, Financial Review. And this is pretty, these, this, this line or these lines are pretty interesting. So ANZ has received 105,000 requests from Australian consumers or customers for loan deferrals on $36 billion worth of mortgages. Wow. That represents 14% of its book. Like, you know, when you have a business which is one is to 10, one is to 14, as you said, leveraged, a little bit matters actually a lot, right? Uh, for these guys, a little bit actually matters a lot. Right, and, right. and there have been 19,000 requests in New Zealand for home, de- uh, home deferrals, right? And NZ has also said that deferrals have been provided on 7.5 billion of commercial loans, representing 15% of all commercial customers. So this is, this is like basically, you know, again, this is like the worst case sort of scenarios that they 
might have imagined in their spreadsheet all coming to fruition at the same time when they're very leveraged. Right. Um, yeah, so I mean, you're going to have some sympathy for where they are and, uh, you know, but yeah, in, t- in terms of managing sort of, you know, it's, you know, the revolving, the kingdom, I, don't, I don't want to, you know, keep repeating that, but, you know, you, you take cash from someone and giving it to someone, you know, maybe you could have, you know, overall from an equity, like as a shareholder and as an, as, as somebody, if somebody's a shareholder, they want to, you know, say uh, gains over a period of time, uh, total returns over a period of time, then, you know, diluting the base unnecessarily uh, seems seems doesn't seem prudent, and I and I totally get it that a lot of people de- uh, you know depend on this, but nobody should believe that a dividend is an annuity, right? A dividend is not an annuity uh, in any way. A dividend should really be a percentage of uh, cash cash earnings, right? And right, for sure. Yeah, most of the time it is guaranteed, but there are going to be times when it's going to be cut, right? And if dividend ratios are, you know, payout ratios are very high, that's where the the cutting probability increases substantially. So again, maybe it's a good lesson for shareholders too to, you know, keep that in mind is, you know, don't think that, you know, dividend is guaranteed. You know, nothing is guaranteed really, right? I mean, if you want guaranteed, then you basically go to a term deposit or a government bond. And 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 in the moment you, if we start treating the share market as guaranteed, that that's when we have sort of you know dislocation. dislocation. So I think that yeah, that's something again to keep in mind. But rant over. <laughs> I like it, mate. I like it. It's a good one. I, and I think this is the this is the it's it's a funny market that we're in, right? When like I guess you know we shouldn't be overly surprised. We 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 talk a lot about temperament around. I talk a lot about behavioural biases, and to some degree, bank bank shells, nab shells particularly at least in the eyes of the bank CEO and board, are demonstrating exactly that. They, they, took the, they take the view that bank shareholders would rather pay, you know, give out $3.5 billion on one hand and take $800 million back rather than just having a capital raise for $2.7 and being done with it. You know, there, there was a very clear... So they're simply saying, we could do either of these two things. ANZ saying, no dividend, we'll, take, you know, we'll, we'll manage things ourselves. NAB saying, oh, we think you still want a dividend. Now... Shareholders will decide whether that's true or not, and the degree to which it's true. Um, and that's, I think that's where I find, that's where I struggle. I think theoretically you are absolutely a million percent right. At, at, a, at a company level, if a, if a, if a company isn't the, the, own, the owned entity of its shareholders who can decide or should decide how things are done, it, it's, a, it's a funny one, right? Like theoretically, I'm, I'm internally jumping up and down as much as you are saying, how, how the hell do you raise three and a half billion dollars of capital at the same time as giving back 800, what, 900 million dollars, whatever it is in dividends. It makes no mathematical sense. But at some other level, if, if, you, if you polled the bank shareholders and said, what would you like? And they said, I would like the dividend and the capital raising at the same time, please. I, you know, at, at a very basic shareholder democracy level, isn't that what NAB should actually do because that's what its shareholders demand or want? Just, just be able to you know, for the sake of for the sake of the argument. Yeah, but I mean, see, I mean, people can want whatever they want, right? I mean, you know, I can want more than hundred uh, percent of the cash profits as <laughs> as dividends, right? But it's, it, I think the want has to be rational, right? It, I think there's a bit of an irrational. What I think I've seen this number of times, and I find this highly irrational that a company that has to actually raise cash to pay a dividend. That in my books is mind-boggling. Like, I mean, that basically means you've got you've got balance sheet issues, yeah. right? You don't, oh, that's you don't have, true. 
Yeah, so you've got balance, massive balance sheet issues. And I mean, if you look at, you know, NAB's returns, right? I mean, NAB's returns, your 10-year returns are like, you know, uh, total returns are pathetic. Like they're basically, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you you have been better off with the index. Um, so why, uh, and, and mind you, the index is largely dominated by banks. <laughs> so, so that tells you how bad the returns have been. The returns are bad because, uh, you you know, if you're a bank, capital allocation is really important, right? I mean, that's really what you're doing. And right. if you can't deliver on that, you've got a problem. And I think bank, you know, it just, just shows that you know, NAB's results are just poor and weak and maybe it needs a rethink of what, you know, like it doesn't hurt. If you, you cut the, don't do the, you know, don't dilute, wait. You, know, you can go back in six months' time maybe to paying back some dividends, right? And use this as an opportunity maybe to reset the base, like there's no reason that it has to be at the previous base because, well, you know, if earnings have changed, uh, should, so should the dividends, right? So, I mean, that's what, what I think. I mean, I totally get that people expect certain income, but I, I think it's also on from the part of the people. Like, I think the mentality that I, if I need a certain income and therefore I need income-producing stocks, I think, you know, as, as an investor, I find that that is a bit of a limited viewpoint. You could always invest in growth stocks and then sell off some. Yeah. And uh, you know, as as an income investor over a period of time, and if you've invested, if you've done growth investing properly, then over a period of time, actually your growth stock should turn into uh, you know dividend-paying companies. You don't necessarily need this transition or be in income-paying stocks um, just for the heck of it. You know what I mean? So yeah, totally. yeah it's, it's a philosoph- it's a philosophical difference, I guess. But yeah, I, in front uh, of capital, no, no, I don't I'm think just, you're wrong. It was it's mostly was devil's advocate, but it was it's just a there there is something around. You know, theoretical versus kind of you know what the owners want. If, if I owned a, a bank outright and I want to take more money out of that bank, as long as I wasn't breaking any rules, uh, it, it's you know there, there is there you know I think what our job is is to say to people, hey, if a if you're doing that, just understand you're being a little bit irrational, and b a bank that needs to do that is not the safest investment in the world, and it's not certainly as safe as most people assume. I think those are the two things we'd want to say loud and clear, regardless of your individual as a listener, your views on what banks should do. Doc and I have a, have a view of what we think they should do regardless of what the shareholders want. And I don't mean regardless as in they should ignore the shareholders, just that all things being equal, there is a better path. But the fact they're not taking that path should be a, what, yellow flag, mate? Orange flag? Maybe a red flag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say yellow flag. I, I mean, look, I'm not saying the bank is, you know, in danger of collapsing or anything. It's not. Um, but it's just... I think it's, you know, the greater good of the entire shareholder base is if the capital management policies are better, right? Over the long term, I know it hurts the current, like short term, but over the long term, you know, we're all about, you know, thinking a little bit about, you know, how things would be if you are you know, taking a five to 10 year horizon, um, not a horizon right now sort of thing. So it's good for the bank. I think it's good for the shareholder base of the bank. I think it's good for the society overall if the banks are managed in that fashion. Um, I, if if I was you know in the, on the board uh, of these things right right now would be a perfect time to reset expectations that you know don't expect dividends to rise every year because if my business doesn't deliver increased earnings well I can't deliver increased you know um, dividends I think that's sort of the expectation that I know and and cutting and setting resetting a base is yeah. um, is is a good thing I think it's it's almost like the yeah it's, it's not. yeah it's the wrong it sort of seems like you know it's an afterthought sort of thing you know you're not growing the business you're not managing for a long term you're managing it for currently for dividends which um 
yeah, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a circular logic here. But anyways, yeah, I think we've beaten this horse to like death. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on though. I will, I will ask you though, um, you, you're, you're, you're happy with ANZ's strategy. Share prices are falling a lot. Are you tempted to look at the banks, even, even cursorily, just to see if there's value there? How, how you, I mean, the ANZ has taken, never arguably has taken the softer option of the two, but both have done what needed, what they boards think need to be done to get them through, or at least give them a better chance to get through. No, no, uh, there's no saying there won't be more dividend cuts or more capital raises. The shares have fallen a long way, mate. It, it, even you, at some point, are going to start to say maybe I should look at the banks just in case there's value there. What do you reckon? It's a good question. You know, we were chatting about that right a couple of days back. You know, I was, I was actually looking at NAB's results and you know trying to look at where the PE is and things like that. Um, so here's here, you know, well, this was the summary of my thought at least. Like, I mean, on a on a on an earnings level, they are. I don't think they're particularly cheap. They're not expensive, maybe. They're not particularly cheap either, right? So, I mean, if you had, if you think, if you sort of take NAB's. Uh, cash earnings of that that you just reported, multiply that by two, assuming that to be sort of the you know the normalized earnings right now. That's like on a on a nine times earnings. At you know, is it is it is it cheap? I don't know. Maybe you know should maybe it should trade at twelve times. That that gives you some room from yeah. nine to twelve. Okay. Right, thirty percent rule, and and maybe you can hope for some earnings improvement. So maybe that gives you maybe you have a fifty percent room for improvement. But here's the thing, right? Yeah. It's a lot of speculation involved. You know, you need the share price to move. You need the earnings to improve, not, not deteriorate. You know, it could be that the next half is worse, um, right. and you you need the market to sort of you know go back to giving it a higher multiple. You know, again. The thing with the multiple too is why should it have a higher multiple, right? It's, it's all theoretical, right? I mean, should it really have a higher multiple? Um, I'm not sure should it have a higher multiple because you know it's uh, largely because again, like these are these are retail banks that serve retail customers. There is a finite amount of growth. In fact, what I would say is that if the borders remain closed, they have serious headwinds because there's yeah, going right. to be no. Um, you know, there's going to be no migration. That's you know, we forget that the migration That's is actually point, actually yeah. So population growth falls, right? Yeah, population growth is going to fall. So I mean, on a on a net, uh, even before this, while we were having growth on a on a net population on a on an adjusted population basis, we actually had you know GDP going backwards, right? Um, and that's not the way you do it. But if you if you take out two hundred thousand people from the equation, what people would you know what we don't realize is that two hundred thousand people that come actually bring skills, productivity, and money. <laughs> they need places to live. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, that drives property prices up take that out of the equation and you've got a problem. So, so effectively, you know, they, they, there's headwinds here. Um, right. right. And then if you think about the, the other way to think about this is, uh, you know, this goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning is that if you think about Australia and you think of the high debt to disposable income, I know you don't like that measure, but here's the thing, right? <laughs> here's the thing. Take out the population as a whole. Anybody who's living here, I'm living here. My debt to disposable income, you know, is high. When I import a person, I'm using the wrong horrible term, importing a person from oh, yeah, yeah, outside. Yeah, no, yeah. But, let's right. say, 
but let's import someone from, say, I don't know, let's say South Korea. They sell their house in South Korea and then move. So they are actually coming here with zero debt in effective in that terms, right? So you're adding right, right, right. The, these 200,000 people that you add to the society every year via migration. Yep. You, you actually <laughs> reset the base and you're going to, these guys can now take on the same levels of debt that we have. So this is, a, you know, I like calling the, you know, in many ways I call it property that in the pyramid, right? It's a pyramid because the, as long as you keep adding people to it and you can encourage those people to take on the same levels <laughs> that society has, you can eke out some growth. Now, um, when you can't do that, as the current situation is, that's going to get really interesting because, you know, you can't, you know, the, the prices, the lever for price movement, which yeah. is really demand, yeah. disappears. Yeah. Right. And then take, then, you know, if you think of the rental market, you take out the students. Well, there's all these foreign students that come to Australia to, you know, learn. They're not coming. So there's, a, a, you know, there's a reverse pressure. So I think, so the banks are, you know, really like the banks, in fact, if, here's the thing. We do, we said the stock market is not the economy. But our banks are basically a good reflection of our economy, yeah. <laughs> a solid reflection of our economy. So in our economy is not in a good place. If you think about in that, you know, you're in a better place, but you're in an overall exactly like a growth economy right now. We're not. So um, I don't know. So, I, you know, I'm not a person, you know, I'm not interested in trying to, it's basically a guess right now. If I have to be a bank investor, I'm going to guess, okay, I'm going to make some money in 18 months. I really don't know if I can make it. So I'm not even going to try. Right, and I'm not an income investor, so I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't want that, you know, four percent or three yeah. percent or whatever yield they're giving. So yeah. no, I'm, I'm basically a pass on banks. The banks are still a sell for me. Nice. I, uh, I, I've, I've been, I struggle with this one. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a funny investor. I've kind of got these deep value roots and these contrarian roots, and and then and then kind of growth on the other side. I, you know, I kind of flip between the two depending on hopefully where the opportunities are. Maybe maybe that means I'm jack of all trades, master of none. I'm not sure, but um, I have to say, like at some level, if if NAB shares are up fifty percent the next twelve months, I won't be surprised, right? Because of that re-rating you talk about, it doesn't take anything to have to increase. It just has to be a little bit of pessimism goes out of the share price. A P of nine that goes to twelve or thirteen or fourteen. I mean, a P of nine that goes to fourteen is more than a fifty percent growth in share price just on the back of a different sentiment from investors. And I have to say that's, if not alluring, it's certainly interesting to me to wonder about. And I will not be at all surprised if we're here, you know, in April or May 2021 saying, wow, NAB has been the best performing stock or one of the best performing stocks of the 200 over the last 12 months because of that re-rating change, right? And I think that's that's always real. It's always possible. And so that's why I'm kind of intrigued. I won't say interested because I don't really think I'll ever buy it, but it, it, does, it does tickle something, some part of me. And I just to finish off on the banks too, I just want to, you know, we, we do this and we kind of keep an eye on social media and stuff as we go through. As we were, as you were talking about, I saw a tweet from Elise Morgan who presents ABC's The Business Program. And she said the total provisions, so bad and doubtful debts from ANZ, $1.7 billion. The profit, $1.3 billion. In other words, the provision for bad debts is now larger than ANZ's half-year profit. So think about that as you think about the, the, the sort of, I won't say stability of the banks, I don't expect anything to go broke, but when you think about the kind of profitability of the banks and how leveraged they are, the kind of the chance that this could go badly, when, they're, when they're provision, their provision, their expectation of bad debts is larger than their half-year profit, that should tell you a heap about the risks that are present in these companies that otherwise people have assumed in the past were safe as ours. Should we move on? Let's move on. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche.
Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I want to talk to you about supermarkets. I want to talk about the uh, fantastic results we've seen from Coles and Woolies. Coles sales were up 13% announced yesterday, the day before, I think. And I've just seen again, speaking of social media, some numbers from Woolies. Woolies sales are up 11.3% in the third quarter. Their online sales are up 34%. Now, You'd be excused for thinking this was some brand new hip kind of fashion label or, or you know, some electronics, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the new Apple iPhone has been sold through Woolies or something. These are numbers you never, ever, ever see. Sales of sales growth of 2 2.5% was kind of the average result, and that was partly food inflation, a couple of new stores. You know, you have to really scrab, scrabble hard to get to that sort of growth. When the two of them together are averaging 12% sales growth, that's effectively $1.08 more I mean, we know what it is, right? It's all toilet paper, rice and pasta. But those are phenomenal numbers. Shows you that the, literally the value, I don't mean value is in good stuff, I mean value is in the actual price, that, you know, adding up all the, all the sales of panic buying. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, why did the price pull back? I mean, you know, partly because maybe, um, you know, as you said, toilet paper, if you've got an overstock toilet paper supply now for the full year, you're not going to buy toilet paper for the full year. Maybe you're not going to buy pasta uh, for a while and probably you're not going to buy rice. And maybe, you know, um, I mean, uh, if you bought some canned tuna and stuff, you're not going to buy that either, right? So there's a there's a sense that, you know, maybe, the, uh, maybe some of the purchases have been put forward. But yeah, like, I mean, they benefited from a lot of the panic buying. Um, and also, I mean, to some extent, you know, if everything else is closed and I mean, you know, you, you have to buy stuff like, um, what do you do? You either buy here or you buy them online. So, I mean, you know, and they've been great in terms of in, in, in their organizational capability and capacity. They have, they've done well, they've, you know, maintained supply and they have, you know, done all the right things. But I mean, the share prices are pretty, I mean, you know, like I'm looking at, it's not that far off. Like, I mean, you know, all time high was, or 52 week high was $18. Now it's like 1550. Um, and it's yielding 2.7%. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like as I, as I, I mean, eventually this calls can't grow, can't have that 13% growth <laughs> in perpetuity, right? It's just not going to happen. So people realize. This is going to be a one off, right? So, yeah, exactly. I mean, Two percent, as you said, or something would be great, right? I mean, I would say two percent is awesome because how do you deliver more than that? It's really hard. I mean, you you know, Coles would deliver that by stealing some share from Woolies, and Woolies would try to steal some share from Coles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much people can buy, so That's I don't know. I mean, the the prices, I mean, are are what they are. I mean, they're they're significantly off the lows, so yeah, yeah. And I think that's that, and that's why share prices fell, right? Is they, they, I don't know who expected. I mean, maybe it's just the closing of a, a whole lot of trades of people who thought they'd buy the sales growth and sell when the numbers came in. I don't know who really, honestly, could have expected. You know, the company saying, "Oh, we can't, we don't really know what's going to happen with sales growth over the next couple of months yet." And I don't know who should be surprised by that. I do wonder sometimes. The market does seem a little bit bizarre to me. I, I don't, I don't really know who was who was surprised by any of these numbers. Um, if anything, I was kind of surprised on the upside. I think, you know, when you think about how much other stuff they sell. Um, meat, milk, you, you can't panic by that stuff, right? Like, so the, the sales growth at 30% is actually pretty impressive. If you had to break down what Woolies and Coles sell in a, in a, in a month, and you take out, okay, maybe you've got some extra baked beans, but 
you can't have extra meat, you can't have extra fish, you can't have extra milk. Um, I guess you can fill your freezer up to some degree, but like the sheer dollar value of that growth is impressive given, frankly, how, how stocked the rest of the sellers still are. I mean, you can get almost everything except for those couple of categories. So, um, you know, A, we've done a lot of panic buying, but B, those numbers are big. I don't know who was, who was unhappily surprised by the results, both, both the, the absolute sales numbers and the fact that they're going to be lower moving forward. It's kind of like no kidding Sherlock kind of moments, right, to, to make it PG. Um, I, again, I don't know who was, who was surprised, who should have been surprised. It just seems a little bit strange to me, but what do you do? That's, that's the way this I, I have not I've not read the report, but I'm going to speculate that, you know, one of the things I noticed in my calls, at least, was um, the toilet paper was no longer discounted when it was available. And the, you know, <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> and when the uh, Coca-Cola is available, it's no longer discounted. So <laughs> to combine that with panic buying and no discounts is going to have a big impact. But, <laughs> that helps, yeah, right? Like, yeah, that helps. Again, yeah, as you said, not surprising at all. May, let me talk to you about some, um, very quickly, we'll, we'll probably do this later, but let's talk about some trends for a second. Uh, I <clears throat> growth in woolly size of 34% online is A, not surprising, but B, pretty impressive given how much they actually restricted online. They, they actually cancelled deliveries for a while, right? It was only um, immunosuppressed people and, and elderly who could actually even get online deliveries. We've seen Kogan sales, and I own shares for the record, up 38%. Woolies online sales up 34%. Um, They've got to be in this. Yes, some of it is going to be simply people just buying more of the stuff they're already going to buy. So, you know, throw an extra toilet paper, extra bag of flour on the order. This, this, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical as to the change that people are seeing. I always use the example that 987 was supposed to be the end of conspicuous consumption. Um, that hasn't happened in the 33 years since. So, you know, sometimes we, we think these are going to be changes in behaviour that don't ever actually happen. I think the big step change people are perceiving, I think of all, for the... Of every 10 that people think are going to happen, maybe one or two actually do um, because we're kind of creatures of habit and we're, you know, the changes we think we're going to make don't always come true. Uh, even even more recently when we're supposed to be paying lower prices for things because of the GFC, the share still fell 40%. So, you know, that, that, that's kind of human nature 101. That being said, there will be some trends that either start or are expedited. And I think online commerce generally in, in whatever form as I said, I'm not surprised Kogan sales are up because you're at home. Okay, I'll buy something on Kogan. Kind of makes sense, right? Like, what else do you do? <laughs> so many emails from them. And I guess that looks, you know, I'll buy an exercise bike or I'll buy a, a something. When Woolies sales are up 34% year on year, that tells me that people are, at least for now, changing their habits. And some of those people are going to be discovering or getting comfortable with online shopping. This, to me, feels like the, the largest probable ongoing trend that I think comes out of Corona. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with that. So, like, I mean, you know, e-commerce, for example, I think, I don't know the numbers, whether there are numbers equivalent for Australia or not, but I would assume that we'd be very similar. In in the US, e-commerce is about, like, you know, 12, 12% or so of total total commerce. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, brick and mortar is still substantially right. large, right? So, there's a lot of, you know, and you think that over the long term, that number would you know, get somewhere maybe 50-50 or something like that, or maybe 60-40 or maybe even 75-25, yeah, yeah. I don't know what time frame. But so, I mean, this this could accelerate and it, you know, it probably makes a group of people who were previously uncomfortable with that experience, maybe, uh, you know, moving to online experience. Now, it doesn't mean that certain online people are only going to win, right? I mean, it, it, as, as you rightly have pointed out, I mean, there's no reason to believe that Woolies can't do it and they are doing it, right? There's no reason to believe that Coles can't do it and they are doing it. So, I mean, there's that. So it doesn't, I'm not necessarily saying that's the doom of, 
I think a good retail operator who can operate across both channels and do yeah. so efficiently would, would have a future. So I think that, that's that. The one, actually, yes, the, the one thing I, I think that may change um, is this work from home culture. I think the work from home likely will, um, y- you know, get a serious impetus because what people might yeah. have discovered is, is in terms of productivity, maybe a productivity is actually good. And if you have opportunity of maybe doing one or two days of work from home, it actually gives you a better work-life balance and, and things like that. And maybe that will take the other related to this is I really think, and and this is based on, I was actually reading a transcript of, um, of a business um, in based off the U S called Paycom. And they, it's it's basically, so you can see context and maybe I'm digressing too much, but Paycom is a bit like, uh, Elmo here in in Australia. So it's a okay. you know human human capital management company provides uh, you know payroll and human resource onboarding you know uh, like leave management and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then similar to um, Elmo, they serve mostly this sort of the smaller end of uh, the customers. So not large enterprises, but you know SMBs type of customers, right? So they're a good read of sort of the SMB feature. One of the things that I read in that transfer, which which struck me as really interesting, is that they they're saying that yes. Um, one of the things that they've discovered is work from home and sales actually and online sales work really well or at least uh-huh. is working really well now and what uh-huh. they're finding is that there's a there's increased productivity because a, a sales manager who could you know or the lead salesperson who could actually do maybe one deal in a given time frame is not able to actually do six deals <laughs> or effectively because they are you know they're able to spend more quality time and you know maybe do demos and things like that so I think there's that sort of change, the things that people did not think could be done um, that is potentially possible. And, and and I think, and I'll delineate a couple of things. Big deals, I think, still happen with handshakes, right? So if, you've got, if, you know, if, if you're a big company, um, like, you know, you're Oracle and you want to sign a database deal with some, you know, government somewhere, uh, you probably have to shake like tens of hands. <laughs> that sort of deal is not going to happen on um, you know on on video conferencing, but a lot of the smaller deals could technically happen. At least a lot of the initial travel could disappear. So I, I think there is some impact in terms of how business overall works, and mm-hmm. you know efficiencies. You know things like um, you know these online tools or stuff that we're using right now, like Zoom, for example, or Skype, or you know WebEx from Cisco, or uh, many others like you know Team. Um, these are things will will. Uh, will take hold, and I think there's yes, there's going to be probably some impact on how people think about business and business travel. So that, that I think is a real trend, and, mm. and you know, and just based on this, I was initially of the impression that probably you know it doesn't matter or it's going to go back. But I think if people find efficiency and productivity gains, then that is a very strong incentive for business to actually apply that. Um, mm. Right. So I mean, that's sort of my thought. Fascinating. I mean, we've worked from home at the full since we started here. Um, Partly because uh, Bruce was number one in the, in the in the country was living on the Gold Coast and I was living in Sydney and that's kind of how it happened. Um, uh, Dean, our first investment advisor, was in Melbourne. It just kind of worked out that that's how the business kind of grew. In the US, they were much more office based uh, and and preferred it strongly for for a very long period of time. I'm I'm going to go half and half on that, mate. I think you're probably right, but I have to say we're very fortunate. The fool, we have a very open, trusting culture, but. I reckon there's a whole lot of bosses out there who can't wait to get their people back in their offices under their noses so they can watch them and see what they're doing, right? Like, I, I would like to think business is much more enlightened, but I but I imagine there's a, a reasonably decent-sized group of bosses who will never admit it necessarily directly, or some will happily, 
uh, who would be much happier if people were actually where they could see them. Uh, because that's kind of how we, you know, I, I was, I gotta say, I won't name the company, but I was, with a comp- I was with a company and I was literally criticized not spending enough time in my chair at my desk. No matter what else I was doing, it wasn't you, your work is bad, your, your outcomes are terrible. Um, it was literally, well, you're not, you're not at your desk enough. It's like, man, if that's the, you know, if, if, if that's the kind of cultural baggage that company has, uh, frankly, I'm happy not to be there anymore. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's one, and don't try and guess because I'm not going to acknowledge if it even is and, and it may be the one you think of. But it's just one of those things where you go, man, that is, that is just something special, right? It, when, when the quality of the work and the, and the outcomes are not even part of the conversation, but it's, hey, can you please sit in your chair more often? Despite that, I was like around the rest of the building, speaking with other people, like, you know, it was just a very different way of working. This company just had a very specific culture, which is that's what they wanted to see. But, okay, I can do that, sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, mate. I hope you're right because it's better for everybody and frankly, a better way to do business. I fear you may not be as right as you hope you are and I, I hope you are, uh, just because that's how people tend to think, particularly bosses. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, again, I don't have a very strong. I just, I, you know, I, I was sort of more in line with you. I just thought after reading that the transcript, I thought that was interesting because it was coming from sort of an SMB um, a point of view. Um, yeah. And I, as, I, as I said, I, th- I think I'm delineating here between large and small. Um, you know, there's more incentive at the smaller end to actually uh, optimize because you yeah. know, um, at the smaller end, you you know, there's less money to. Um, destroy, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so every dollar counts. Um, if that's the case, then you know optimization is 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 really important. So, yeah, anyways, I, again, I I don't really know. I mean, again, I, I I don't want to keep referring to social media because frankly, it's already out of date. But some of my listeners will hear this. But also interesting, apparently, the Fin is reporting that One Three Cabs is now signing up with Woolies to be to do its grocery deliveries. Uh, given how few people oh. are taking cabs these days. So, you know, the, I, look, I'm great for one, three cabs, right? I mean, Uber's, Uber's the, the, the kind of cool company, or at least it was until I had their own internal dramas, but it's been kind of, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the cool kids. Um, kind of nice, not that I care either way, but, you know, got, good to see one, three cabs doing something different. Um, and also, you know, again, that sense that obviously, Woolies needs the drivers, one, three cabs needs the business, another sign of maybe how, th- well, obviously right now things are changing and things will go back to normal to some degree. That'll be fascinating to see what doesn't change. All right, should we move on to a couple of questions from our favorite, the Motley Fool Mailbag? Let's do that. All right. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, did we talk about cryptocurrencies last week? I don't think we did. I think we did, actually. We did talk about cryptos? All right. Yeah. Let's move on to the next question then. Was from Jack. Uh, Jack says, hearing that you love Instagram questions, I thought I'd ask one. Good on you, Jack. (laughs) The question... Can you convince my friends to get off Raise and use a better alternative, i.e. Comsec, as a broker? I have tried and failed and was hoping the experts could give it a shot. Many thanks, Jack. Hashtag, you know what it's going to be, don't you? Get Doc on uh, Insta. <laughs> All right, buddy. You're, you get first shot at this. What, yeah, well, firstly, do you agree with Jack? Should people be abandoning Raise for another platform? And if so, Why? Well, so I'm, I'm not like, I mean, you know, uh, depends on again. So like, I mean, for, for investing small amounts of money, I think raise and, you know, things like Comsec Pocket, they're actually quite handy. Um, but they, they all come with limitations in terms of what you can invest, you know, mostly ETFs. And so they're limited investment um, universe, right? 
And, yeah. and if you are going to be investing more than you probably want a broker, I, you know, I'm not at all a fan of uh, using Comsec Lash because, I mean, it seems a bit expensive to me. And so why use the expensive uh, platform? Although I realized yeah. that, uh, although I realized that, you know, it's, uh, you know, pennies on the, uh, I guess, you know, it's only little bits of small differences here. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, probably NAB, NAB trade is a little bit cheaper. Um, so, yeah, like I mean, if if I think I think the main distinguishing factor would be if you are investing in individual shares and you want to have you know pick pick stocks, then you want to have access to an online broker who gives you the full suite of things. Um, pick one that you like, uh, whether it is you know um, the pl- platform from uh, NAB to NAB Trade, or whether it's Comsec, or you know there's IGI Markets, there's you know there's all of the Saxo. Uh, yeah. Saxo Markets, there's like a whole heap. So um, I'm not recommending any specific uh, platform, but yeah, that would be my sort of rule of thumb. Uh, in, in general, I'm again, I'm a big fan of individual investing in individual equities. So you, for that, you would need a proper broker, but uh, I'm probably not making a very forceful case. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> May I, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm torn, I've got to say, Jack, and the reason I'm torn is because this, uh, we don't want to ever let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? And so that's, now good could also be the enemy of perfect, right? Because we don't try and do even better. But that tension is really, really important. Here's why I say that. If people are using Raise and they weren't using anything else before that, then Raise has been wonderful for them. If it helps them start a savings and investment habit, then that is spectacularly great. And so I'm always really careful. If, if it's Raise or nothing, then go Raise every day of the week. Right, super, super clear, easy, straightforward, makes a whole lot of sense. The problem with those sort of platforms, I don't dislike Raise at all. Um, the problem, well, at least you know, conceptually, is if you're only rounding up, you're not going to ever make money out of this thing. I mean, you make a little bit of money, and so be it. If you are rounding up and adding more, then you can do it cheaper without the fees and with probably better options somewhere other than Raise. So Raise is kind of like a gateway drug in a good way. <laughs> You know, it gets people into a habit, into a market, into a, you know, a planning mindset, which is really great. But it's almost inevitably not the best platform for them to use if they're trying to optimize their investing. And so really, it, now, and that's great, right? In, in a lot of ways, that's great because it is that midpoint, which is fantastic. Um, but I do think for most people doing only that or, and here's why, here's why I raise it both good and bad. It's good if it starts a habit. It's terrible if it is the only thing they do. It's kind of like the, the climate change stuff, right? And I don't want to get into the politics of that. But for some people, you know, worrying about reusable plastic is a great way to start thinking more broadly about their environmental impact. Other people say, well, I'm not using re- reusable bags anymore. I'm not using single-use plastic bags anymore. I'm doing my bit. And that's not anywhere near close to enough if we are going to avoid climate change. So you've kind of got that, you know, there's both potential elements to, to these sort of solutions that are imperfect. They are something. They are better than nothing as long as they're not the only thing. Uh, so look, for, for what it's worth you, mates, Jack, I would say to them, once you know, once you've had your eyes open to the power of investing, of regular saving and regular investing, there are better platforms, cheaper platforms, more uh, fully featured platforms, as you say, Doc, out there than Raise. And I would absolutely say once people have got their, you know, kind of when they're in the swing, look somewhere else for those options. Comsec Pocket is a really good option. Um, Comsec itself, I, I take your point about the cost. I use Comsec, I always have. Uh, part of that's just laziness and kind of inertia. 
Uh, I could get a better price somewhere else, I'm sure. That being said, I also hear some terrible things about other platforms. I've used Interactive Brokers. It is woeful, but it's super cheap. Um, uh, NabTrade, you mentioned, we've had some threads on our member forums about people who've struggled with that website. I, I can't verify otherwise, so I don't want to cast aspersions, but for what that's worth, I would happily pay a little bit more for every, I trade so infrequently, I'd be happy to pay a little bit more to know that I knew the broker, I knew the website, the customer service is pretty good, although that's also had its criticisms. Um, so, you know, I don't care whether people use ComSec or not, but moving on to something else, investing in yourselves is a really, really positive thing. When you start to get larger amounts of money, you're much, much better off doing that. And as you say, Doc, making your own investment decisions. Um, what you, I mean, you can still buy indexes or indices, I should say, ETFs through ComSec anyway, if you want to. Um, but if you want to buy individual stocks and we think you can make more money doing that, if you do it well, um, that can be a, a great way to do it. So I think if you're on raise, Jack, if you're friends, or Jack's friends, if you're listening, if you're on raise, then fantastic. Um, good on you for getting going. As you mature as an investor, as you start to save larger amounts of money, we hope you are, look to a more traditional broker platform to give you more flexibility and, and save you some cash. Any more on that, Doc? Uh, no, I think you've covered it all. I'm going to sneak one more question in, mate. And because we've got so many... Can I ring the bell on a mailbag extra episode this Sunday? Let's do that. Hey, hey, there we go. Doc has given it the Doc Mahanti imprimatur. We can definitely go ahead with that, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I wasn't really surprised, let's be honest, but, you know, it's always nice to have it confirmed. Before we do the last question, mate, I want to tell people they can join your service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Doc's works with Kevin on EO. It is a service looking for, as you won't be surprised to know by now, if you've listened to this podcast a few times, the best growth companies on the ASX, the businesses that, yes, carry some more risk because they are smaller or maybe more daring, uh, but have bigger potential upsides than the average bear. You won't find NAB or ANZ at Extreme Opportunities. Doc, is that fair to say? That is very fair. You will find some really cool little businesses that, as I said, they're young, they're small, they're probably more fragile than the average. Some of them will go badly. Some of them will go very, very well. And even when they do, that's where the money is, Doc. I mean, that, that's the, the style you've used from... You've kind of learned from and somehow, you know, I'll say copied, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you've taken some of the best of our US Rule Breaker service run by our co-founder, David Gardner, now for, I guess, 20-odd years, maybe, maybe not. Oh, yeah, must be 20 years, um, to, to bring that to the Australian market, to the Australian audience. Uh, Rule Breaker is doing a spectacular job, and we can't suggest that you'll necessarily deliver the same results as David Gardner, but that approach is working really, really well in the States. It's working well here. There is absolutely going to be volatility, including times like these when people freak out about growth stocks. But as and when these businesses deliver on their promise, there is four, five, six, seven, potentially 10 times their value available if they do it well. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And I think, you know, you can liberally use the word copy. Um, there's no shame <laughs> in, in copying uh, uh, some of the best. And, and David Gardner is probably one of the, you know, not just one, but in my mind, probably the best growth investor um, I know of. So, um, yeah, no shame in copying uh, that style. It's it's a little bit, op- I guess, adapted for the Australian market because of the right. size of companies. It's a little bit more venture capital style here, like because it's really small companies that we are looking at. Um, you know, small market caps, low floats, uh, and things like that. So the share prices are very volatile uh, for that reason. But yeah, ex- expect uh, you know you, you'd expect. Um, lots of movements in these stocks, but yeah, we, we still think that um, you know you'd get you know you'd get. I, I think it, it epitomizes sort of our way of long-term investing because you know to get those huge multi-baggers, you need to invest for the long term. You need to actually be patient, 
and um, you know, and therefore, if you know, they like to say, the the stocks that go up, you know, if they go up say five x, you know, that can actually make up for like three stocks that go to zero, right? I'm not saying that you know you're going to get, you know, you can get make up for five stocks that go to zero, but I'm saying that you know you could actually lose three and yeah, still be okay. Yeah. Um, the math um, is just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly in favor of that style of investing, right? If you're good at it and you are, then being able to pick a couple that are going to go up very strongly, you can afford some losses if they happen. If they don't happen, even better. But if they do happen, you're still ahead. That's the benefit yeah. of the way you invest. Yeah, and, and we have had some, you know, some early successes. You know, we have had some three baggers and stuff like that. So it's the stuff that have gone up, you know, three times in you know, a relatively short period. I would say, like, it's, it's still early days. You know, a little over two years for some of them that have done really well. Um, so. Yeah, uh, I mean, but the, you just have to assume that you're going to get volatility and be comfortable with that. So it's for that sort of investors with a little bit longer time horizons. So you need to be, you need to have a long time horizon. You need to be not risk averse. If you don't like risk, don't please don't join EO. Uh, yes. Not because I need people to look after you just because you won't have the stomach for it. You need to follow. But if you are in that mindset, if you are prepared to take a little bit more risk for potentially meaningfully higher returns, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for Extreme Opportunities. EO podcast. And you can get a special deal to join Doc and Kevin at Multifield Extreme Opportunities. All right, mate, that ad is out of the way. Let's get on to the last question from Richard before we oh, we'll come back on Sunday, but you know, well, just for this particular episode. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm new to the pod, and it's a great antidote to the strange world of self isolation. Richard, I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure if that's a comment on us or a comment on self isolation. Um, so arguably, you could listen to uh, two cats uh, arguing, fighting in the backyard, and that'd still be a, an antidote to self isolation. But we'll take the we'll take the compliment. Is I'm in my mid thirties and starting to put a bit of money into shares for the long term. Good man. I have a few individual Australian shares and a few international ETFs. When it comes to diversifying, is it worth starting to look at some of the more creative ETFs or REITs? I see there's a lot out there in terms of having coverage of real estate, infrastructure, bonds, etc. I wonder if that's going off the reservation a bit and should just stick to what I'm most comfortable with, which is equities. Full on, Richard. Good man. Full on, Richard. Uh, Doc, what do you reckon? Should, should Richard stick with his knitting or should he be going to some of the more creative options out there? You know, this is what I said. Richard, Matt, you have already sort of answered your question by your last line, which says, should I stick with <laughs> my most comfortable, um, uh, you know, what I feel most comfortable, which is equities. The thing is that there are lots of different ways to make money, right? You can, but if you're comfortable with something, that gives you a behavioral edge. And the behavioral edge really is that that allows you to tolerate volatility. It enables you to sort of ride through difficult um, environment and difficult investing climate. And, and every type of asset has difficult investing you know, climate. There might be at different points in time for different types of assets, but they all do. So uh, I think that's, to me, at least in my mind, the biggest thing is you should stick with what you're comfortable with, what you think you can ride out. So yeah, I would just, you know, if, if I, personally, I stick with equities. You know, I, you know I've, if, I've got some, a little bit of investment in property, for example. I have no REITs exposure whatsoever and again again i think i think if you don't know much about something then why get go there because you know that that's where all the problems start happening you know so uh, it's good to stick to something that you know and you appreciate and you understand and you feel comfortable with i'm going to agree uh, i'm going to add a little bit of color uh, richard it's good to be diversified but you don't have to be noah you don't need two of everything uh, so just be be thoughtful about that i think to doc's point Unless you, unless you have a good reason to add them, like if you're saying, well, should I, because they're there, 
which it kind of sounds like you are, and it's a reasonable question. Um, the answer is almost certainly no. You know, um, I, I could I could own gold and, and art and wine and uh, all sorts of stuff because it's there. I could own Bitcoin because it's there. Um, it, it's reasonable, like with your stock selection, to say which stocks do I think are going to be the best for me and for my portfolio. Similarly, which asset classes are going to be the best. You don't need bonds in your portfolio. I am convinced of that. Um, and again, not you personally, but an investor generally. As always, we can't give specific advice, but I, I don't I don't reckon anyone has bonds in their portfolio necessarily. Um, uh, similarly, look, the only thing I would say is you talk about some internationality you've already got. I think you're already there. I mean, it feels like, you know, you've got good coverage, you've got good diversification. Um, there's stuff out there. It's kind of sexy and cool and, you know, everyone's talking about it. And so we kind of feel like maybe I should, maybe I should. That's an ever present behavioral bias or behavioral problem. As Doc says, you've already kind of nailed that, right? You've already, you've already dealt with some of that stuff. Um, I reckon you're on a pretty good path from the sound of it. Anything else from you, Doc? No, I, th- I think that, that, I think that's it. I think it's called public. Now, we have got a mailbag episode this Sunday, which means we need questions. Now, we have got some for this week, to be fair. But if you want to get in touch, and we think you should, we'd like to hear from you because, well, you know, this, is, this, is, this podcast is for you, believe it or not. Doc and I do like talking and like the sound of our own voices, but we can do that without recording it if we wanted to. The only reason to put this out is because our listeners hopefully enjoy it and get some value from it. Now, if you have a question or comment, if a topic you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to know about it because we can talk Again, about stuff we like to talk about as long as we want, but we'd be far more interested in making sure they are relevant to you. So hit us up on the socials. Let's start with Twitter because that's where Doc is, the only social he's on. Uh, at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's handle. Mine is at TMF Scott P. And the corporate account is at The Motley Fool AU. Direct messages, tag us, use our, ta- uh, our Twitter handle in your tweet if you want to get our thoughts on something. We don't necessarily answer them directly on those social platforms, by the way, but we use them as fodder for our mailbag episode. So hit us up on the Twitter machine if you like doing that. If you're a little bit less anti-Mark Zuckerberg than Doc is, you can get us on, or you get a couple of us on Facebook. You can go to Scott Phillips Money, or one word, or The Motley Fool Australia, that's Facebook. And again, same thing, feel free to drop us a note there, a direct message or a comment. And if you're on Instagram and hashtag get doc on Insta is always a popular hashtag. I'd love to see that one. Then again, I'm at TMF Scott P and the Fool's Corporate account is at the Motley Fool AU. You can hit us up there and get your question hopefully answered on the mailbag. I did say last week and I'll say again, we're actually getting too many to answer all of them now, Doc, which is kind of cool. I feel a little bit bad for some of our commenters and questioners who ask us those questions, um, but we will try and choose the ones that are new, that are different, that we think have most applicability to the most of our audience. So if you take those thoughts into account as you submit your questions and comments, that increases the chance that you'll be able to have them answered in the podcast. All right, that out of the way, mate, that is us. So before we go, we want to remind our listeners they can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or their favorite Android podcast app. And I will say again, mate, not to bag Apple, but we are still hearing reports of some um, uh, Apple Podcasts app users not downloading the mailbag episodes, weirdly enough. I've asked Triple M guys to look at it. They don't see anything in the in the feed. I don't know if it's our fault, their fault, or Apple's fault. It doesn't really matter. But just if you are an Apple user and you're not seeing those mailbag episodes, make sure you seek them out. Um, maybe jump on another podcast feed or download it straight from the Triple M app. You can also do that. Um, so there are options for you. If you want to make sure you hear the, hear the mailbag, we'd hate for you to miss out. And of course, once you do enjoy that mailbag episode, give us a rating, give us a review. Throw us some stars, as David Gardner likes to say, because, hey, where are you, I mean, because we want other people to find the podcast too and ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to make sure that we can build that audience and help other people 
enjoy, hopefully benefit from this podcast as well. And of course, you can get some foolishness straight to your inbox and a little offer for Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.